Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Bowring. Karen is the Managing Director of Professionals UK Limited, a company which organises work experience and internship placements for international graduates and undergraduates looking to gain experience in their industry in an Anglophone environment. Karen, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Such a pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves too, Karen. Um, whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we would dive straight into the subject. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we begin there because it has hung over us throughout 2020 like something of a dark cloud, I think it's fair to say. And it's been one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. For you, Yourselves, just how has it affected you and your operations, though? Wow, well, I couldn't underestimate um, how it has affected us um, because we're in a kind of perfect storm of um, international students coming to Britain to do um, funded work placements as part of their degrees. So it, we've had, we were just dealing with Brexit and then thinking, okay, I think we've got a strategy for dealing with that. And then COVID started and it just has, since March, it felt like we are just jumping over logs continuously. We, we had instant um, cancellation of 90% of our bookings. A few people decided to hang on just to see if it finished before June and then finished before July. And so it's gone on and it's just been a kind of, yeah, it, it, it's been something like I can never remember, um, shrinking the staff down, just it's like getting into a, a lifeboat from a very strong ship that we were sailing, and it was, you know, it was, it was it's a great business, but yeah, we're we're in quite a different, smaller but strong ship at the moment. And what do you feel the long term effects of this pandemic are going to be on your specific industry? Well, it's all about building trust and continuing to build, um, you know, reaching out to get new pathways. I think a lot of old ways have disappeared, at least temporarily. You know, people's fear of travelling, um, the retraining that needs to be going on. Um, a lot of industries, I mean, I'm part of really the English language business. I used to run a school, and so I know the kind of how the schools have been decimated. Schools that have been standing for 50 to 100 years have just been kind of hanging on to the edge. And it's a massive industry. And it's kind of fallen between two stools because it's um, it's really part of the tourism educational business. But it's not got the benefits of um, the tourist sector. Mm. So, yeah, it's really struggling. Um, and I think, society, you know, it's a big shift for society. But obviously there are going to be some um, opportunities in, in the process. 
Absolutely right. And it's all about seizing upon those opportunities that do come about um, amid all of the uh, the worry and all of the uncertainty. Absolutely right. Um, if we sort of move on now away from COVID slightly to talk about leadership in a little bit more of a broader sense. I understand, Karen, that before you established your own business, Professionals UK, back in 2005, you were working within the FL field and you have experience not just working in the UK, but also teaching in places like Greece and Brazil. When it comes to sort of different cultures like that, do you see a difference in the way that leadership is perceived? Um, yes, I do. I mean, the particular countries I um, taught in, you know, back in the day, um, they, I think, often when I came back to the UK, I found that um, there's a much flatter management system in the UK which I've always enjoyed. Um, and so people have, what I've found from friends who've come from other countries, you know, they've, they've enjoyed that kind of being seen for what they can do, not necessarily who they're connected to. And uh, of course, there's going to be anomalies amongst that. But, you know, I think that leaders are really people who can see the talents in other people, give them the skills and some training, and then give them the space to develop and grow without being micromanaged or helicopter managed and then you know it, it can produce some like a, a garden of flowers actually rather than you know getting a high turnover in a company of staff which is really really draining so I think that's the kind of that's always been my focus and I got that really from my very first manager when I started working my first director of studies um, John Shepherd I'll actually name him um, as my, uh, you know, he was wonderful. He just saw the talent in, in different staff and and almost prematurely let them get quite responsible positions, of, mm. you know, helping young teachers and stuff like that. And, and that, that stayed with me. I think there is a lot to be said for that leadership approach, isn't there, of giving people responsibility quite early on, because a lot about leadership is about learning, isn't it? And without taking on responsibility ourselves, maybe making one or two mistakes along the way due to an experience and then learning from those experiences. There isn't any way that we can really develop. Even when we're in leadership roles, it is still a constant development process, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the moments for me was when I took on um, a person to um, manage one of our departments in a school that I was running. And I thought, oh, my goodness, he's not doing it absolutely perfectly. And I, I thought, oh, gosh, this is a reflection on me and my recruitment skills. And then I just thought, just let him go. Let him get on with it. Back away. And, yes, he made a few mistakes, but he made a lot more fantastic decisions. And I got to see that it doesn't matter if it's a bit messy sometimes. It doesn't matter if things go a little bit wrong sometimes or go, you know, really veer off course because, if you keep talking and you have a good atmosphere and people feel able to approach you and, and say, oops, I've made a big mistake here, then, you know, you can get things back on and then you've got a team that trusts you. So exactly. that was really a kind of, yeah, stepping back moment for me that hopefully mm. I've built on. And what was it that made you sort of feel that going into business for yourself was the way forward for you? What was that penny dropping moment that made you think, Professionals UK, this is it? Well, running a school, I was kind of involved in assisting students to get work experience, 
um, after they'd finished their courses and that kind of thing. And I just found it intriguing. And I loved the, I loved the, um, the way that they developed so strongly. And I guess I was really an entrepreneur inside the school I ran. You know, it, it was a brand new school, so it had everything to do. And I loved that, getting a team together and growing in. And people just kept saying, why don't you do this to yourself? And I, I just thought, yeah, but I don't know what to do. And then it's one of those golden moments. A conversation just happened, and I just put my hand up and said, oh, I'll be your business partner. And uh, my, that first experience didn't last long, and it wasn't so good, but it jumped me out of the safety of running someone else's business. And I got to see that it's just a series of projects come together that instead of someone paying you a salary for, the, the, the money comes straight to you rather than going to the accounts department mm. and then to you. So, yeah, it's just a, it's just lots of little actions and it doesn't have to be a fully formed business from the start. I can certainly understand where you're coming from, from uh, that point of view and how it came together, maybe differently than um, you feel a normal business would. And just for those younger generations of aspiring leaders that may well be tuning into this as well, given that you have so much experience, not just running your own business, but also teaching as well, Karen, what message would you have to give them to really make sure that they get on the road to success too? Um, I think it's about being quite, asking your friends, what is it that I'm good at? What do you think that, what can you see in me that maybe I can't see in myself? Because that's what helped me. I couldn't see these things that people were saying. And then gradually, so many people said them that I thought, well, maybe maybe there's some truth in it. So it's that kind of, this is a reflection. And, you know, just kind of honing down onto a particular skill and not, it's getting away from the idea that you have to do stuff perfectly. And, And I think, you know, social media, is helpful and it's also a bit dangerous with that because people portray perfect lives and nobody has perfect lives. Mm. So it's kind of, you know, what I did at the very beginning because I was so nervous about my own ability. I just, I looked at a few people's websites and then I didn't look at them for two years, which might sound a bit mad these days. But I just thought if I concentrate on what everyone else is doing, I won't get down to what I need to do right now. And, and my mantra at the beginning was, if I can't do what I want to do, do what I can do right now until the moment arrives and the next thing, you know, gradually slips in. And that's the, the, um, the quote by Goethe um, mm. of boldness has magic in it. That I always had it on my wall in the kitchen and in my office because it's once you make that decision to jump, all sorts of magical things happen and people jump out of the bushes, you know, well, not literally, but they, they jump out from everywhere and say, oh, I know someone that could help you with that. Oh, I know someone doing that. And it's always worked. It, it's a magical concept. So it's a bit of trust, you know, just jumping off the cliff and knowing you won't crash onto the rocks at the bottom. No, I think there's a lot to be taken from that message for sure. And it's certainly sound advice to anybody tuning into this. Do you have the bravery to go for it when the time is right? Exactly. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, Karen, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time, I do want to bring things back onto current affairs and most importantly on the future, just because with the ongoing COVID-19 situation, we know that we could well be in this for another six months at least. We're going to have to keep getting to grips with this new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. But for you and Professionals UK, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business over this next year? And indeed, where do you see yourselves this time in 12 months? 
grown, we've really put our business online. Um, so we're doing a lot of remote placements, which um, we have found are working extremely well. Not all businesses, not all placements can be done remotely, but like social media, entrepreneurial business, that kind of thing can be done um, online. So we, you know, we have lots of close contact between managers and students, and they can be doing it from wherever they are. And it's like it keeps Britain reaching out to other countries and being able to tap resources from other places, whether a lot, a lot of the time, language skills, connections. We've had businesses open second offices in Italy or get new supply routes from Brazil for, you know, um, fruit bars and stuff like that. So, it's, you know, we just want to keep that openness out there. And we want to, we want to know what's going on with Erasmus and Brexit. And, and then, you know, we want to follow the rules, but we need to know what those rules are. And that's what we're really hoping for, um, you know, in the next six to 12 months so that we can just get all our energy in one direction rather than kind of wondering what, mm. what's going to happen. You make such an important point there because while a lot of media attention is rightly on the ongoing pandemic situation, raging ahead in the background are the Brexit train negotiations. We will know before too long, hopefully by the middle of October, what our future relationship with the European Union is likely to look like. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it is going to be a positive one that's going to benefit businesses such as yourselves. In fact, Karen, just given how enlightening it's been having you joining us on the programme today to share your viewpoints, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next 12 months and have you back on the program just when we can reassess exactly what's happened in the time between and what direction we're going in at that point in time as well as just catching up on how things at professionals uk are getting on behind the scenes too thank you I'd really welcome that. I would really welcome that, Karen, for sure. I've really enjoyed having you join us today. And most importantly as well, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world in the meantime. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. It was wonderful to welcome Karen Bowring onto the programme today, Managing Director of Professionals UK Limited. I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett has enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair during his ministry, and as well as serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. 
in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm-hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that he will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.